and welcome to the TNW podcast, the show in which we discuss the latest developments in the European technology ecosystem and feature interviews with some of the most interesting people in the industry. My name is Andre Degeler. I am the head of media at The Next Web and host and producer of this podcast. Joining me today, as usual, is our senior editor, Linia Algren. Hey, Linia, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you, Andre. Happy New Year, first Happy of all. Happy New Year, I'm, indeed. Yeah, I'm still. <laughs> I think I'm still digesting Christmas <laughs> with the in-laws in Italy, both uh, physically and emotionally. But other than that, I'm I'm very happy to be back and excited for the year ahead. Yeah, great to see you again. It was great to have the first uh, phone call with the team in the morning after the Christmas New Year hiatus that we that we all had. So I hope everyone enjoyed the well-deserved rest. But yeah, Christmas in Italy, that sounds actually pretty great. It was. It was 20 degrees and sunny for a couple of days, which felt a little bit strange for Christmas. But I do have to say, after the fall that we had in the Netherlands, I was. I'm not going to complain. Yeah. No, that sounds amazing. Did you we, have a nice time over the Christmas holidays? Yes. Went to Germany with the family, which was absolutely not plus 20 degrees. Uh, warm. <laughs> it was mostly rainy. But then Christmas markets, uh, food, glue wine, which which I didn't drink, but just adds to the spirit, you know. Yes, it does. I mean, few people do Christmas markets like uh, like Germans, so yeah, it must exactly. have been a good time. Yeah, no, it was absolutely perfect. And now I'm very uh, much looking forward to everything that this year has in store uh, for us uh, and for the entire technology ecosystem in Europe. But today we have a few topics uh, to discuss from the past uh, week or two. I think we can get some topics from uh, more than one week uh, ago just because it's been a very quiet time. Yeah, I think we're allowed. <laughs> Okay, we're going to allow ourselves. So in today's episode, we will discuss brain-computer interfaces, autonomous cars in the UK, uh, cybersecurity safe words, Bramford's law, and actually a few things in between. You will also hear an interview with uh, Mariut Falkstedt. Uh, she is the chief executive at the European Investment Fund. So let's start from the beginning, a story that we actually have uh, covered. What, what's it going to be today? So I want to highlight a story that was written by our journalist, Joanna Licardopolo. It might have flown under the radar a little bit, the story, because everyone has been so busy with the potential of AI for 2024. And I promised I wouldn't talk about AI. <laughs> I remember that. I, I was watching. <laughs> um, but th this does have a little bit to do with AI, but also uh, some other really cool uh, tech things. I'm a big sci-fi nerd, as everybody who knows me is aware. The story came up a couple of weeks ago about the development of brain-computer interfaces. Specifically, it's a German-Dutch startup called Sander Laboratories that received the largest amount for a single financed research project in the EU to date. It won 30 million euros in a call for proposals that was initiated actually in 2022 in October by Germany's cybersecurity agency. The whole um, proposal project was called Secure Neural Human-Machine Interaction. Mm. And what I find, first of all, interesting is that it's the German cybersecurity agency that is involved in this. So that means that on some level, they believe it to be a national strategy in, or in terms of securing digital sovereignty to be able to develop technologies mm -hmm. like this. And so basically what they want to do is they have a project called Neuradaptivity for Autonomous Systems. And what they will do is use a passive brain-computer interface to read and interpret human brain activity by tracking the signals. 
roll straight from the off the tongue. <laughs> right, it, it is a little bit of a tongue twister, but um, most of these uh, sort of futuristic ideas of uh, of neurology and uh, machine interface tend to be. Uh, but what it will do then is to code them and teach machines how to understand human emotions, cognitive decision making, mental states, etc., so that they can then be transferred into the artificial systems. So is it about uh, the actual tracking of the signals or is it about uh, like understanding and analyzing and uh, under, yeah, understanding them? Yeah, it's about coding them in a way that machines can understand right. them. I will quote the researchers themselves. They say that the ultimate goal is to enable machines to capture and interpret brain data in real time, which would help them adapt to the cognitive and effective states of each individual user, fostering a personalized experience. And then what I found to be particularly salient about this is that it would also allow the transfer of the user's knowledge, goals, and values into the machine, making an intuitive interaction between the two possible. Sounds a bit utopian, no? Utopian or dystopian? Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> Depends on how much of a techno-optimist <laughs> you are. Well, I mean, I, I am pretty optimistic, but like the this getting those things off uh, just uh, tracking the brain signals, I'm not really sure it's uh, it's even possible. Well, they have said that they will take four years to develop the prototype. So I okay. think uh, uh, <laughs> stay with the space and and check in again in four years, and maybe they'll prove you maybe they'll prove you wrong on that. Who knows? I, I mean, we can both agree that a working BCI would be really yeah. cool. No, absolutely. I would I would love to see to see that. But also, like my uh, uh, thing about BCIs is that. It's always a bulky thing that you have to wear on your head, or it's an implant uh, that is controlled by Elon Musk or somebody else as uh, great as him. Yes, so what Andre is referring to is obviously Neuralink, uh, yeah. Elon Musk's uh, brain-computer interface startup. It, yeah, Neuralink has uh, reportedly killed 1,500 animals Shit. in the research process. So the one of the ideas behind this project with the... German-Dutch startup Sander Laboratories is that it's going to be non-invasive. Mm. And yes, we have all seen these bulky sort of setups with sensors measuring brain signals. So I'm assuming that they will develop this into something that's a lot more user-friendly. And we were talking also a little bit earlier about uh, VR headsets, etc., and how this could potentially be incorporated into something like that and, and coupled with AR augmented reality, mm. perhaps. And of course, this as utopian or dystopian <laughs> as you would like to to make it, it does hold great potential for people suffering from, for instance, paralysis and um, how they would be able to communicate oh, and, and uh, control computers, etc. So um, it's a very fascinating space. As you say, it's very difficult to imagine how it's going to develop. But I think that what has perhaps been lacking in the past to make this hardware more accessible or more user-friendly or whatever without making it into an implant is the software component. And with the recent developments in AI, and not just generative AI, in, in machine learning and artificial intelligence overall, I think that this could potentially be where we see a step change. Um, in these types of technologies as well. And I mean, uh, say what you will about Neuralink, but they have just called or made the call for, for actual human 
subjects <laughs> to start testing their implants on. So that's a hard pass. Yeah. <laughs> so things are happening. Right. Um, no. So I am going to make a calendar reminder uh, for myself in 2028 to to take a look and see uh, what uh, what they end up uh, coming up with. But yeah, sounds sounds uh, totally fascinating. Watch this space. Okay, moving forward then. So that was a story that we did cover and now to a story that we did not cover. So we, after some deliberation, uh, so what did we decide to choose? So I think while staying in the in the space of human computer interaction or, or, or lack thereof, if you will, the UK Minister for Transport told the BBC Radio uh, last week that the UK could see self-driving cars on the roads as early as 2026. Doesn't sound early in the sense uh, in the US they have been already sort of rolled out in a limited uh, fashion, but still for, for quite some time now. They have been indeed. But if you compare it to, for example, the EU, where there is a, there is a framework in place to develop the specific type mm -hmm. regulation, but the certification for these vehicles will be route dependent. Whereas to my understanding in the UK, it is a question of allowing self-driving vehicles on city streets, much like they have been in San Francisco mm -hmm. uh, or Phoenix. But it's, a, it's an interesting timing, I would say, given that San Francisco has just uh, retracted license from autonomous vehicle operators following a, a series of quite high profile <laughs> incidents. Yeah, and I've true. also been reading accounts by journalists who have specifically gotten into these vehicles in order to see for themselves. And they say that they, uh, they do quite intriguing things. Like when they're faced with a situation that has not been in their training data, they don't really know how to respond or how to act. And then is when these accidents occur. And I guess in the same way that when accidents happen uh, with aircraft, safety is updated uh, and things evolve into becoming safer and safer, etc. And I, I guess in the ideal circumstance, this is something that would happen with autonomous vehicles as well. Exactly. And they will end up becoming safer than than human drivers. However, yeah, well, yeah. yeah, what do we have to sacrifice to get there, I guess, is the question. Yeah, I mean, but uh, but I agree. That's what I was thinking as well. That the, the more the more data these uh, vehicles get, uh, the better the safety record is going to become, right? And also, if you think about it, and that's something that I've been uh, toying with for a while, and there is no conclusion that I have come to. But if all vehicles have suddenly become uh, autonomous, most probably we would see a much better. Uh, road safety. The issues usually come from the interaction between autonomous and non-autonomous vehicles. Yes, agreed. Uh, but then you also have to take pedestrians into account. Um, okay. The <laughs> those pesky pedestrians? <laughs> the yeah. pesky pedestrians. Or cyclists, you know, seeing yeah, as we're yeah. in Amsterdam. I, I think that, for example, in a city like Amsterdam, with the erratic nature of yeah, okay, cycle traffic, it's not feasible no probably i can't not. imagine for yeah. for decades to come no i agree yeah it's like given uh, the the way that people usually interact on the road uh, the uh, uh, cars and pedestrians and cyclists yeah i i think most of those autonomous uh, vehicles would be just uh, uh, we would stop somewhere on the crossing and never move again <laughs> Yeah, because it's an organic chaos, yeah, right? Is. Which is something you can't really train for 
At least not yet. We'll see maybe when quantum comes. Unless right. unless we get autonomous bicycles, which I don't think we should. No, okay, <laughs> now we're going down a, a total rabbit hole, um, very particular to localization. But I, I looked this up and there has been nearly 600 known incidents involving driverless vehicles only in San Francisco since June 2022. I did not look up how many known incidents <laughs> involving human driving vehicles there have been. So there's a, you know, I guess there's a question to be answered there as well. It's not as if humans behind the wheel are the safest thing in the world no. either. I don't think if it's about these particular statistics uh, or not, but I remember uh, seeing a similar number before, but also uh, there was a footnote about it that vast majority of the incidents were not actually caused by the driver's vehicles. Mm -hmm. So they involved them, but they were not caused by them. They were not at fault at this, in, uh, at this, in this incidents. So these numbers could actually, be, could actually be misleading, as far as I understand. But in any case, the UK plans for the makers of the autonomous vehicles rather than the owners or the operators or the, of the self-driving cars to be legally liable for any crashes. That's a pretty important. That's a pretty important uh, thing. That's it's something that has important. been discussed for for forever uh, uh, since the since the idea uh, that uh, the autonomous vehicles could be uh, one day on the streets uh, was introduced. Yes. So you know, Londoners, how do you feel about <laughs> self-driving cars? <laughs> yeah, if you're listening streets? to this from the UK, let us know what do you what do you think, and and whether whether you would actually get into one of those autonomous uh, taxes, robot taxes, and you? Uh, go from one said absolutely. No, without thinking twice, I would just jump in. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, I mean, obviously, as a tech uh, journalist and editor, I would absolutely do it in research purpose. Would I feel, uh, would there be a hint of hesitation? Potentially, yes. About safety? Yes. Probably about not being in control. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. More that sense. Perhaps not safety as such, but about not being in control. Like, oh, what happens if it rogue... Uh, decides to take off down the street and, and I can't open the door or more than actual accidents occurring, I think. Okay. Now, I don't really, I don't really feel uh, any sort of concerns in, in, in that regard for some reason. <laughs> Maybe just stupidity. Might as well be. <laughs> anyway, sp speaking of stupidity, this week we learned something. <laughs> what did you learn? Well, I learned, actually, I heard about this some time ago, but I was reminded of it again through an excellent uh, interview that our senior journalist, uh, Tom, did uh, with a cybersecurity expert. And he was talking about things that are occurring in the cybersecurity space or what to watch out for in 2024. And deep fakes mm -hmm. are obviously going to be a major issue going forward. Like we've said before on, on the show that we have a huge election year coming up. And so this is very concerning. But also on a personal level, this is not something that we should disregard, especially when it comes to our finances. So what he suggests and what I have heard other cybersecurity experts also say before is to create safe words hmm. with your family and your close ones, but also with your bank. So that even if you are on or, or they are on what seems to be a video call with you or a phone call with you with a voice that sounds exactly like yours, a face that looks exactly like yours on the video call, they will not engage in any financial transaction. Let's say you're asking for help with money or you're asking your bank to transfer money so that they will not engage in any financial transaction unless you say a specific word. 
and they should have this on file, hopefully a well-encrypted file. <laughs> but if, if it's your bank, obviously, if it's your loved ones, then hopefully yeah. they know you well enough. So I, we've set this up now with my partner. Right. Um, and I will now when I go home it? to see... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's nerdy. <laughs> it's very nerdy. But uh, I will also set it up with my family because my mother has already uh, contacted me before and said, did you just text me telling me you lost your phone mm -hmm. and that you need help? And she, uh, we have a specific greeting, her and I, that we always start our messages with. And so she understood that it wasn't me. Right. So that's already like an early version of that. Uh, although, of course, those things people, I think, will be able to copy. But the like the specific safe word, I yeah, think, is a, is a good strategy going forward. Actually, now that I think about it, I think my bank had that like 10 or 15 years ago already. This is oh, the really? so-called phone password, basically, that, that, that you could use. But, but I'm not sure if my current bank here in the Netherlands uh, has it. I don't remember setting everything like this up, but maybe it's just something that I have forgotten since. Well, if your bank doesn't have it or doesn't offer it as a service already, I think that this is something that we should all start um, requesting from our Yeah, banks. no, absolutely. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I will think what kind of nerdy or otherwise uh, interesting word I could I could set up with uh, with my family. Yeah, it's something to, I would have said you should think about it over the holidays, but yeah. the holidays are over. <laughs> holidays are over. <laughs> don't say it, just don't say it. <laughs> Next year. <laughs> Maybe that, that would be a New Year's resolution yeah. to come up with something funny enough. Okay, so what did I learn this uh, this week? Again, same as last time, I want to talk about something that I think I used to know some time ago, but then I have totally forgotten it since then. And now I relearned it last week. Uh, so consider me undereducated, but it is only now that I have learned about the existence of Benford's Law. Do you know what it is? Lina? No, I don't it? actually. Okay. I'm very so, intrigued. So it's a, it's a really interesting thing, very interesting concept. Uh, to borrow the definition from Wikipedia, so the law is an observation that in many real-life sets of numerical data, the leading digit is likely to be small. So basically, with like real-life sets of numbers, be it, I don't know, payrolls or even uh, population of uh, uh, different uh, places in a country or in the world or something more uh, numbers related, let's say uh, powers of two, it is much more likely that the number one would appear as the leading digit. In fact, uh, number one appears as leading digit in about 30% of cases or about six times more often than number nine. So it's like 30% for one, then a bit less for two, a bit less for three, a bit less for four, and so on and so forth, all the way down to nine. And the law also applies to second, third, and further digits in numbers as well. Uh, this, this is very counterintuitive, in fact, uh, just because you would normally expect, of course, that in real life numbers are distributed rather uniformly or like randomly, but that's certainly not the case. And uh, the law has been uh, sort of uh, proven and uh, it uh, is even often used in proving accounting fraud, at least in the US. It is uh, accepted by courts as evidence. So basically, it turns out that, for example, when people cook their books, the number distribution ceases to obey Benford's law, and this is very easy to reveal. You just uh, uh, look, at the, look at the distribution curve and you see that something is, uh, something is fishy. I'm surprised that the people committing fraud are not aware of this. I'm, and I'm actually very surprised. Make their I'm books very surprised look like too. It follows Benford's <laughs> law. So, and, and Benford is a mathematician. 
Uh, he's, he's actually a physicist, I think. Uh, he's a physicist, uh, and uh, so he formulated the law, I think, in 1930s. But uh, in fact, it was also formulated by somebody else 50 years before that. So sometimes it's referred uh, by a double name, but most people know it as uh, Benford's law. It's mostly known by this. So if you are interested, there's an entire rabbit hole actually to fall into with this type of thing, starting with the podcast that I actually learned it from. It was an old episode from 2009, I think, of the Radio Lab show that's called Numbers. So you can listen to that and enjoy it. 2009? Were people podcasting in 2009? I, th yeah, I think, well, I mean, Radio Lab is, is a radio show as well. Uh, but uh, but yeah, they were, I think, one of the uh, one of the first like really good narrative uh, narrative podcasts. And uh, uh, they, they are doing a great job uh, in terms of their uh, scientific and uh, scientific adjacent uh, coverage. So this, has been, this was one of the things. Now let's move forward to today's featured interview, and that is with Mariut Falkstedt, uh, the chief executive at the European Investment Fund. I caught Mariut at Tech Barbecue in Copenhagen last year. Uh, we sat down in one of those mute boxes to talk about the role of the EIF in the European tech startup ecosystem, its plans for this year, and also Mariut's vision as a fresh uh, chief executive of the organization of success for the fund itself. Enjoy it. Mariut, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Andre. So, uh, European Investment Fund, uh, EIF, you started as the chief executive in January uh, this year. Uh, can you talk about uh, your own background first, and then we can uh, switch to EIF itself? Interesting question, my background now. I am from Finland. Mm -hmm. I am a banker. I have been working before joining the European Union institutions in a, in a commercial bank. And then I joined the European Commission. So in fact, I was a policy maker, mm -hmm. always working in the for the benefit and in the interest of the small and medium sized mm -hmm. enterprises for infrastructure financing as well and so on. And from there, I became the deputy chief executive of the EIF back in 2013. And from there, I jumped, made a career in the European Investment Bank as the first female secretary general in the 60 years of history of the EIB. And now after that, I, I had the chance to return back to the EIF, to this wonderful fund of fund public uh, with the public mission. And that job I'm doing now indeed since January. Right. So you are in charge of the entire thing and you know, all the strategy, all the programs. Is that the case? Uh, yes, as a chief executive, uh, indeed, you are in charge of the whole institution. And uh, the EIF has two legs. Mm -hmm. EIF is doing venture capital, private equity, so risk capital. And the other leg is the guarantee part. We are guaranteeing portfolios mm -hmm. of loans that are or guarantees that are provided to SMEs. As you know, in the European Union, there are some 23 million SMEs. Right. So our core mission is to support access to financing to SMEs and risk financing in particular. And this is what we do for around this year for around 13 billion euros. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean in a, in a plain language? So what is it that you do for European startups? For European startups in particular, we provide venture capital. So as we are a rather small institution, we have only 700 people. <laughs> we cannot serve, you know, all the startups scene. That is impossible. So this is why we work through intermediaries. Mm -hmm. We invest in the venture capital funds, which in turn, for example, invest either in startups, in early stage seed, uh, growing companies, and, and you know, we also make uh, lower mid-market uh, financing. Mm -hmm. So what is, the, what is the benefit, what is the beauty of the EIF? Mm -hmm. 
we can basically, together with the European Investment Bank, cover the whole life cycle of a company. So we really start from the idea phase mm -hmm. uh, over to the startup and the early stages, the growing companies. So with all the different products that we have, equity, and guarantees for, by the EIF, and then in the end, corporate financing, for example, venture debt mm -hmm. by the EIB. And that's the beauty of the two institutions together. And we do it indeed for a public mission. Right. So the way I understand it, really, uh, the EIF somehow uh, sits in uh, most of uh, European uh, VC funds. So you you, you have provided uh, uh, financing in one way or the other to to the most uh, like the most major uh, funds. What, what does it What does it mean? Like, uh, what are the requirements of that? Like, what uh, what sort what strings come attached with the EIF financing? Now. When we started this business 25 years ago, the main goal was to develop venture capital markets in the European Union because they were really, they were hardly not existing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we have completed this task quite well. Uh, when you look at the Western part and the Nordics, for example, together with the other public institutions, we have done a lot of work uh, and investing and, 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 you know, developing these markets. So. And now the work is concentrated on those areas mm -hmm. because still Europe is very fragmented and we, we have to continue investing. And then also there are sectors where we have to, where we are a major investor. We continue to be a major investor. So what are the conditions first? When a venture capital fund comes to us, we start a long-term partnership. So it means it's a lot of trust building. We are very uh, cautious and very we are very thorough in our assessment. We look at the management team. The most important part is always the management team. Do we believe that the management team can achieve what they see in their investment strategy? Is the investment strategy, you know, really uh, robust enough for us? All the internal processes, procedures, whether they are they are good enough, or what? What is, for example, the tax structure mm -hmm. behind? Uh, who are the other LPs? Of course, is also important, and um, I think that's. Basically, the main, main importance is the management team itself. Mm -hmm. Do they believe in the vision? Can they work together? Is it a diverse team? Mm -hmm. Nowadays, it's very important to have diverse teams, okay. not male only, female only, but diverse, because we believe that good decision making means that you have to have diversity in the team. Yeah, I talked to, to uh, Kinga Stanislavski in the morning. That's exactly the point that she is making as well, that there is uh, a consistent increase uh, in uh, returns uh, for uh, mixed, uh, mixed uh, VC and LP teams. It is good decision making, you know, it's good mm -hmm. governance. It's also about creativity, you know, innovative uh, thinking comes when you listen to different views and opinions. That's why it's, it's right. very good. It's important that we enhance that in the VC field. Yeah. And what do you, uh, what industries do you see as uh, more important, let's say, or most important even uh, for the European ecosystem right now? Where do you think there should be more funding coming to? Interesting question because there are so many areas, in fact. But of course, here we are in a tech barbecue. Mm -hmm. So, of course, deep tech, mm -hmm. quantum, uh, new space, mm -hmm. uh, these type of areas. But we shall not uh, forget also life sciences, for example. It, it continues to be an issue. And everything what is related to climate and sustainability. So agri-food, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would not say there are only few priority areas. There are many. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a lot of research and innovation in Europe. Uh, we have to bring Absolutely. this to an entrepreneurial step. So we have to enhance the fact that entrepreneurship uh, uh, companies are created, startup, uh, startups are created, but in different fields. So it's not only one field, indeed.
But I think it has been uh, the point has been made a few times that particularly deep tech startups in Europe are not getting enough funding, are just getting going underfunded uh, consequently for many, many years. Is that something that you also see? Well, we see it because we see that we are investing in almost each, you know, venture capital fund, which is in this field. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, a market share is at the moment uh, a, a enormous. But it's also, of course, right that for uh, many investors, it's a difficult field to analyze and understand. Uh, and then a public fund of funds like us, then our role is more important in this one. But I hope that while we invest, usually mm-hmm. we have a, we have a, let's say, a certain cornerstone effect. And when we invest, then hopefully the funds continue to have access also to private uh, sector financing. Mm-hmm. Am I understanding correctly then that your, uh, your goal is to, be, is to make yourselves obsolete at some point? But this is should be the goal of any public institution. And there are areas where we are not no longer so needed. Mm-hmm. Look, for example, at IT. Yeah. Uh, still 10 years ago, it was the you know something that EIF had to invest a lot, but now we can slowly, we can slowly step down and then take uh, you know focus at other areas. So now deep tech and space and life sciences could be the next frontier for you then. Let's see. <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> and uh, so how do you how do you measure your success? So you started as the chief executive in January. At the end of the year, what will you look back at to decide and to to assess your uh, uh, progress and your success? It's an interesting question. Venture capital is a long-term investment. So it's very difficult to have short-term uh, benefits. But what is important for us as a policy uh, with the policy policy mission is that we achieve a certain level of additionality. Mm-hmm. So meaning that when we have our mandates, which have a policy objective, that we have achieved it. Whether this is in supporting innovation and uh, and growth, or whether it's more specific, like in deep tech mm-hmm. or in um, you know having a certain number of funds that are focusing on climate and sustainability. Mm-hmm. So. This type of additionality thinking, additionality measurement, this is where we look into our success. Of course, we are a fund of fund. We have shareholders. Mm -hmm. We have to also generate profits. Uh, So it's also the, you know, the financial part is also, of course, part of the success. Right. And uh, what's the what's the track record of the EIF like in terms of uh, actual uh, financial success and returns? We have never made losses, let's put it this mm-hmm. way. <laughs> no, uh, uh, I think, you know, when you look at the 20 years, 25 years of for only the, when we focus only at the venture capital funds, it is profitable business. We are trying to tell it to every uh, pension funds and insurance company. It's worth uh, investing in, in a diversified manner, mm-hmm. but in long term. You will not make short term uh, profits, but it's a long term, very profitable business. Of course. And uh, so, but uh, I wanted to return to the point that uh, you uh, or you are an LP in like almost literally every major uh, VC fund in Europe. Can it become a problem? Could it be seen as a problem, like as a bottleneck, as uh, in a way that uh, the EIF sort of dictates uh, certain uh, certain requirements, uh, certain things uh, for the rest of the of the industry, for all the VCs, basically? It's very interesting you say it because it used to be like that. The industry complained a lot about the EIF, about our requirements that we are too strict and we are complicated and all this. But I think now the venture capital industry has developed a lot in European Union. No one has understood it is for their own good, for their own sake that, you know, to have a robust ecosystem, the well-functioning ecosystem, there is certain criteria one has to fulfill. Now, I think this period is over. 
In fact, what happens is that I get complaints that we are not investing enough. Uh-huh. There are countries and venture capital associations, venture capital funds who come to us and say, look, you should invest much more. We need you still. You are a cornerstone investor. You, 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 when you invest, then others will follow. So we are still needed indeed. And right. it's right. I just said uh, earlier in one of the panels that uh, Uh, you know, people complain that our due diligence process is so long. It is long because indeed we we want to enter in the long-term trusted partnership. We want to be absolutely sure that we work with teams where we can work together. We have the right right uh, values, both have the right values. Uh, so we are at times we are a bit complicated. But once you are in, you are in. And how long is long? How long can it take uh, for a VC to uh, become a partner? It really depends on the fund. Mm-hmm. It really depends how mature the proposal is, really. that that That's the question, yeah. Right. And uh, so uh, in one of the previous interviews that I have uh, uh, seen with you, you said that we still, uh, w- w- one thing that we still lack is that we need to make uh, pension funds uh, invest uh, in, uh, in the VC industry and uh, work with, uh, with EIF. So where are we on that? There are indeed many pension funds who are already more advanced than the others. And it's, it depends also a bit on the country. It depends on the solvency regulation, a directive, of course, uh, which is somehow restricting the possibilities, I would, I would say. It depends on the capacity of the pension funds to analyze venture capital, which is uh, not an easy thing either. So somehow... What UK has done, so to say, basically saying, giving an instruction, now you have to invest into venture capital. I suppose this is the strictest way you can do it. Uh, one way of doing it, um, potentially we should follow a bit in Europe as well. Because I, as I said, in long term, it's very good business. Are we are we able to do that? Are there even the effective mechanisms uh, that would be needed uh, to make this a reality, like um, to make it a directive sort of uh, thing? It depends really on the government, isn't mm-hmm. it? Uh, the willingness of the government to do so. It's very much national business. Yeah. Okay, so 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 it's still uh, still first of all dictated dictated by the national uh, agendas. Because I see that uh, we already have, for example, if I'm not mistaken, Omer's Ventures as a, a Canadian uh, pension fund that's pretty active uh, in Europe, for example. But I don't see a lot of activity from our uh, local uh, local pension fund players. Yes, well, you have a few. There mm-hmm. are a few indeed. When you, in particular, when you look at the Nordics, you see that. Okay. But the more you go to the south, the less, less it is. Right, I understand. And uh, so, when you look at the um, at the European tech ecosystem uh, in general, uh, taking a wider uh, sort of perspective, what do you see as our strengths? The research and innovation capacity. When I look at the number of innovations and and the research activities, projects that are there, I mean, Europe is really uh, outstanding. But what we don't have yet enough is that this innovation and these ideas, these academics are turned into entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And um, I think their universities would need to make a bit of more work that the success of a university in, in the field of research is, for example, not only focusing on the number of publications that is done on the topic, but really what do I bring to the market? There we have a long way to go. There are very good universities who are doing it already, but others could really follow. And I think this would be a big step forward in developing and, and also developing those uh, early stage companies in uh, Europe. But then again, this is not something that you can sort of uh, say 
okay, now you're doing this. Now universities have to start working with entrepreneurial centers of excellence and start spinning out startups. And again, this is more of a national government type of business. So what what can you do from your position to to encourage that at least? At least we can talk, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the, the main thing already that we are discussing it here, I think raising awareness, this is very, very important. And I'm talking to many universities, deans mm-hmm. of the universities, uh, bringing this to their attention. Absolutely. And what uh, what sort of response uh, have you been seeing so far to that? Many positive, many positive. But of course, you know, academia is academia, so it's not always that easy. But there are there are many who have an entrepreneurial spirit mm-hmm. and want to also develop, you know, kind of uh, technology hubs in their countries or around their universities. They see the benefit. All you know, and what is also uh, important is that. This type of activity may also bring revenues to the university, which is important mm-hmm. for their yeah, no, know, good, good education. Yeah. Right. No, no, that, uh, that that makes a lot of sense. And what do you think are then the uh, weaker sides of the ecosystem? What are the issues? What's uh, what's lacking? At the moment, I think, you know, 25 years, we have done now a lot of work for early stage. We have been growing companies that we have also working on venture capital funds, kind of this type of 150, 200, 300 million. What we now need is that we have many companies in Europe who have a re- are reaching the level of becoming a unicorn, also in tech. So what we need is European Union financing to fast-growing, innovative companies who need financing rounds 100 million, 150, 200, and so on, um, where we don't have the capital in European Union. We might have the capital, but we don't have the funds. Mm-hmm. We have many outside European funds who are working in this manner in uh, Europe. And the risk is then that at some stage, their companies are moving out. That is now the next step where the European Union has to work on. We mm-hmm. are working on it mm-hmm. in the European Investment Fund. Uh, thanks to the support of a number of member states, mm-hmm. we have a 3.75 billion, which we can, um, with which we can finance European funds of a minimum size of 1 billion euros, mm-hmm. because they will be sizable enough to provide the support to, to those uh, innov- innovative and growing corporates uh, that need it. How many of those do exist right now, over 1 billion funds? Not many. <laughs> handful <laughs> right right but you are not in a position to start one yourselves i suppose we cannot our st- start one ourselves and it's not i think it's not our role our role is really to generate you know to to boost the markets and uh, we see already a quite an interesting pipeline of new mm-hmm. uh, newcomers uh, who are potentially uh, you know uh, have strong enough to reach the 1 billion limit. So we, we do have that. We see an interesting pipeline. So we can discuss again next time. Right. <laughs> Sounds good. And uh, uh, to, to wrap it up, uh, can you also talk a little bit about uh, the policy uh, level of things? So what do you think needs to happen on the policy level? Uh, and uh, probably better talk about the EU level uh, to make it to make life easier for startups, for the VCs, for the ecosystem in general. To continue, pro- uh, first thing, to continue providing financing. So, for example, we are benefiting from the InvestEU program mm-hmm. uh, with sizable amounts together with the other implementing partners. This absolutely has to continue on both sides, risk capital as well as guarantees. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, I'm afraid that the politics don't always understand the importance and the benefits of it, in mm-hmm. particular as it is 
good business. You know, it's profitable business in long term. So one should not reduce the funding. One should increase the funding. Right, right. So, it, but uh, you keep saying that it's a profitable business. Is it seen as not a profitable business by, uh, uh, let's say, certain politicians in Brussels, or what's the problem now? I would say, you know, as it is a long-term business, politics is usually short-term. Mm -hmm. So that this discrepancy in terms of timing is an is an issue. Right, I understand. Thank you so much, Mario. Thanks a million for joining the show. Thanks, Thanks a lot for your answers. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Once again, big thanks to Mariut for finding the time to come on the show. Do keep your eyes and ears open for more upcoming interviews. Uh, uh, this week, we are preparing a bonus episode for you as well. But for now, this is all we have time for in this episode of the TNW podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Linia, thank you so much for joining today. Such a pleasure talking to you as usual. Thank you so much for having me once again. Please help us spread the word, tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on social media. Just search for The Next Web and you will find us almost everywhere. Music and sound engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. Feel free to email me with any questions, suggestions and opinions at andri at thenextweb.com. Have a great week. Uh, talk to you next Wednesday. And again, keep your ears open for a bonus episode. Bye bye.